everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Lowdown Society podcast, home of all things bass, where I get to talk to and pick the brains of some of the biggest side men and women working in the industry today. The guest today is Sean Hurley. I met Sean in Los Angeles in early November 2017 where we were talking in his studio on a very long lunch break on a busy session day for him. If you've been following pop and rock music over the last 20 years or so, chances that you've heard Sean play bass and didn't know it is very, very large. Sean has played for such artists as John Mayer, Annie Lennox, Miley Cyrus, Leonard Cohen, and Sean was also a founding member of the hugely successful rock band Vertical Horizon. I was really inspired by the amount of detailed information that Sean gave us during this podcast regarding his recording setup and his approach to recording and his ways of staying current and inspired in such an ever-changing business at his level. As always, I really hope that you guys have as good of a time listening to this as I did recording it. Without further ado, let's go down to Sunset Boulevard and the studio to meet Sean. We are here, everybody, with Sean Hurley in Sage and Sound in Los Angeles. That's right. Hello, guys. Welcome, and thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day. Thank you. This is working out perfect. We've already had quite the uh, conversation going off mic, so to speak. I know. But, um, you missed it. First question. We just talked about the energy in Los Angeles right now. And I think it's interesting listening to podcasts with guys who are a generation older than you and me, like Steve Lukather and, sure. and people like that, that were part of the late 70s, early 80s session so many hours of the day there literally it's no sleep and it requires drugs. Right. Heard those tales. That's not the LA I moved to. I feel like a lot of those older generation guys talking about L.A. now, even the ones that are still paying their bills many yeah. times over, they have a slight, not bitterness, but a little bit of a sentimental thing going on. And anyone that pulls up all music and reads your credit, especially in the last 10 years, the years where everyone else sure. says L.A.'s falling tell, apart, <laughs> it, tell, it tells a different tale. What's your experience been with all that changing and, you know, recording going the way it's going and mailing sessions being the thing and right. touring being a thing for artists now where they make more money than record sales? How has that affected your workflow? It, it has been, you just, what I've found has worked out is just being open to things. And because I hit LA at a time when the decline or at least the transition into the present day LA was already underway, I didn't take any of it negatively i didn't take any of it personally i didn't feel like things were being the rug was being pulled out from under me or anything and mm -hmm. i i moved to la which in 2000 which is 17 years ago which to me now looking at it it's like wow that i was very young but at the time i felt like okay now i'm i i i was like 26 27 i know what i'm doing i'm eager to meet people and it's really been the same ever since then i'm meeting people whether they're artists other musicians or producers and just engaging in hey what's the gig is it a session is it a song is it an album is it a film score is it a song for a tv show is it tv show score uh is it a tour is that where is this thing going and because I've always been open to whatever it is and I've always been very curious about recording technology I started out on tape 
I saw it go to computers very quickly. Like before I even was out of a touring cycle with this one band, we recorded on tape and by the end of the tour, it's like everyone was recording either to hard disk or to Pro Tools on a laptop or yeah. a, a tower. So I saw it and the, the beginning of, I remember, I was just thinking about this like two, three weeks ago. There used to be a website and I almost signed up for it. There are other bass players on it, other musicians, but you would kind of list your credits. You would list your the recording gear you had and then you would be available to be contacted. And I think Lee Sklar might have been on it. Like there was legit guys like, hey, it was suddenly everyone was reachable. And that's the thing that, the energy we're talking about mm -hmm. with younger musicians that maybe don't have the studio, the traditional studio chops that most of my peers my age or older have, they've gotten it through a lot of just, it's, it's how we all started. You're experimenting with your friends with a lot more time than you need to, to just take chances where when, when the clock is ticking and money is on the line, you might take fewer chances unless you're in a band. So having that brought back in because everyone's just opening a laptop and eight hours is not the same as it used to be it's like oh we could do 16 hours on this i mm -hmm. i've done so many projects where just kind of show up expecting it to be a long day because people don't watch the clock the same way they used to i like that i i get stressed out if there's going to be i've got i don't like having two sessions in a day because then it's like I'm thinking about getting done at a certain time, making mm -hmm. it to the next thing. And I know guys live their lives like that. It's like a three-hour here, mm -hmm. three-hour there. I know Nashville has an element yeah. to that. So what I that energy, while it sort of troughed a bit, and I think I was immune to it a little bit because I started touring again as a matter of you know, a well-balanced musical diet uh, in 2008, until now, I still regularly will go on tour with an artist if they ask me, where from maybe 2003 to 2008, I thought, okay, my touring days are done. I'm going to be only doing sessions and things. And so that has come back in. And again, it's just being open. Like if you're, if you're meeting people and there's creativity and there's, you know, there's a job there, it, it has to be, it's my job. So it's, there's got to be money involved. There has to be an end product there has mm -hmm. someone has to be paying a bill at the end but those opportunities just seem to be blossoming now in a way that they weren't maybe when we were trying to figure this all out when people are trying to figure out could you really record at home could you is the software good enough can you really make a high quality recording yeah. like that and because the answer is yes there's a lot of cool camps and there's a lot of young guys and inspiring guys and old guys it doesn't have to just be age I've, I've met people of many different ages even some of my film scoring buddies or tv scoring guys they generally just work out of home and yeah. that's something you couldn't have done i don't think you were doing it 20 years ago you know some of some of this transition i was immune to because as the session world was really crumbling in the traditional sense it was 2008, I remember taking a tour and I was the first one of my peer group that was like, yeah, I'm gonna go on the road with an artist and they were all, they all thought I was a little bit like, oh, you're gonna, your spot's gonna get filled, you're gonna miss something. And then as it turns out, that was kind of the beginning of the end of the, the old way that it was where mm -hmm. you would maybe set it and forget it in terms of, oh, I'll just wait for the phone to ring for the next album that that producer's doing yeah. or, you know, so. 
The energy here, because there's a lot of live music, LA is spread out, so whatever you're into, there's an area of town for it. And I'm seeing new faces, and then I'm seeing them over the last two, three, five years. And like, all right, the new wave, the the inspiration is there, and you just have to be open to it. You have to be eyes mentally open, ears listening. Music still is, you know, I'm talking to a like-minded individual, but you hear things... And it's like, I love that. That's brand new. I love it. I'm not pining for the old music. I love classic stuff. But I'm still finding, and some of it is because I've been here so long, I'm getting calls from guys that maybe I worked with seven years ago, ten years ago, five years ago, that we just didn't have a thing that really provided multiple you know, occasions to work together. And now that's happening. And it's like, wow, what a gift. Someone I met... And because we always approach it like this is a potential new lifelong client or lifelong yeah. friend, yeah. those come up seven, eight years later, which is it's kind of mind-blowing in some ways because it's not the predictable yeah. path. And it's that's what L.A. to me, and I'm sure in other big music cities it's there, but I'm experiencing it in real time, and it's inspiring. One thing that's always been inspiring to Los Angeles, even before your time, as it sure. were. When you look at guys like Nathan East and Lee Sklar that hang out in LA and play on great records for a year and then they'll be out of town for an entire year with Phil Collins or Eric Clapton sure. because they are road dogs as well. Being in Nashville and being primarily a road guy, Nashville has always separated record making and touring in a big way. Yeah, and oh, it, it, that stuff is legendary. Even to us out here, we yeah. hear of that, and like, and I've heard little anecdotes. Yeah, that. I've never been very bitter because I've been lucky enough to be on tours that I really love. But I love how the legends out here are making records, and they're like, no, I'm on the road for a year. And this is before people were doing sessions on laptops. So right. That means they took a year off sessions to go out with. Again, Clapton or Phil Collins. Name your artist. It's not just Lee and Nathan, but this is the one thing. It's you know, it takes more work probably now than it used to then. Mm -hmm. But I've talked to Tim Pierce, who's a great guitar player, mm -hmm. and he's been around through the '80s. Oh yeah, and he I'm a he big fan. said yeah, and yeah. he talked to guys that even predate him. Um, there's a lot of guitar players that you know would share stories with him, and they'd say even in the '70s, starting. They would get a tour, say Barbara Streisand or some some big artist, and for them sessions were just a faucet. They would turn it off. They'd go off and do a three month tour, six month yeah. tour, and they'd come back. And because things literally work this way, they just turn on their faucet again, and all the sessions would come flooding yeah. in. That's trickier to navigate now, but still very possible. And since I've been really touring as a regular thing like there's a couple artists when they call I say yes and whether that's a three-month engagement or an eight-month thing or even longer I value that relationship and that job prospect so much that I I will you know unless something drastic changes I, I keep saying yes because yeah. I enjoy it on many levels we just talked about your kids before I started recording here and so you're saying that there's basically a group of maybe three or four acts that to you personally and musically and from a soul and paycheck perspective means so much that you look your kids and family out and say this is worth my time away from you guys and not many people are right right yeah. it, it is that is like you know you think about a Monday through Saturday working days of the week if you're gonna do sessions 
those are always open days. Yeah. Even Sundays, like, okay, yes, yes, I'll go work. Not many of those people that call me on those are going to even offer something long-term. But if they did, it, it's really a special recipe of like, how am I... I mean, the money has to be right, the bandmates have to be right, but there also has to be an element of, am I valued in a certain way? And the older I get, the more I, I go like, I don't want to have to fight for this position. I would like to be brought in for, even just that musicianship is really valued. And that, I, another reason to say yes to those other gigs is just to hold on to them because certain artists... They value musicianship so much. It doesn't have to be just my musicianship, but I see them value another, you know, if I couldn't do a gig, I'd have to send a sub whose talents were far exceeded the gig because the value of musicianship and what might be called into action in terms of what's in your wheelhouse or your yeah, toolkit yeah. is very high and demanding. And those are the ones I want to hold on to. Now, I would love to do a concert in Chicago, say, and then you know, magically go to bed in my own house, wake up in the morning, get my kids off to school, and then go do it again. But the deal is that's not the deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and even if you're on a private jet, it's really hard to do it all. And I've talked to some older musicians, and I say older, like 20 years older than me, and they even talk about the challenge of like, music is a night job. And like, you know, guys talking about Max Weinberg, he's like, he can't, you can't ask him to be in lobby at 10 a.m. and then do a three to four hour show that night. Like, you have to kind of adjust yourself. So I do take the, you know, you kind of set sail like the guys in the whaling ships and hundreds of years ago where, look, I got to go out and do this, satisfying my life's calling and think, you know, it became my calling long before I anticipated even loving other people other than myself, let alone a wife and two kids. But you do it, you take that, you take them with you, you know, in your in your way. And when you come back home, I'm able to do all the things and provide the life for them by having, carrying what the joy I get on stage and yeah. the joy I get from interacting with an audience and with an artist and with my other bandmates. And then I bring that, and when I'm playing soccer with my son, I'm not frustrated that I didn't fulfill my life's calling, or you know, yeah. I didn't I didn't shortchange my dream. Now, it's it gets hairy. It's a, it's a balancing act. But I I would imagine anything I did would be a balancing act because there's days like today I didn't leave the house until, gosh, what was it, 11 a.m. And it's a Wednesday or Thursday, you know, so the fact that I don't know what day it is, is very telling. Like mm -hmm. I have the luxury of a Wednesday could be very different from a Thursday where yeah. a lot of my neighbors, they're out before the kids get off to school. So you, you got to take, you got to look at the whole view and, you know, feel good about your choices. And man, I'd love to be, have a pile of money that... I made some magical way and go, oh, I don't have to work. But it's like, the reality is I do have to work. And man, playing music as that part of the equation, I'll take it any day of the week.
I first, like I think many people, bumped into you sort of as a band member of Vertical Horizon. That was the beginning of what I would call my true professional career. Yeah. yeah. I saw Vertical Horizon show at the Exit Inn in Nashville. I remember that one because were, those were the really exciting days, our, yeah. our beginning days. Tracks not counted. I have not heard harmony singing like that outside of the Eagles very much in my life. Like, wow. Well, that's a very high compliment. I was, we're always bass players. I'm like, sure. I don't know Sean's a good player. I want to listen to the bass. Fan of the songs. I like to sing right. along, have a beer, and try to not be music police yeah, and be I a fan. Yeah, I try to do the same. Sure. And, uh, but I just could not focus on anything else. But when the choruses came and you guys sang together, I was like, fuck me, this is good singing. That is, a, th that's something we don't really talk about. But that was a big deal, even for me to get the gig in the band, was, hey, you're going to have to sing. And I reluctantly, I wanted the, the gig, and I wanted to be able to play bass in a band like that. So I, I said, all right, I can do it. I'd sung all through high school, just backgrounds, and so I was aware. But it was it was so far back in terms of what my I considered my full musicality. Mm -hmm. But that band, if they didn't demand that and force the issue and they had had a guy before me who was a great singer and a great bass player he's a better singer than me but he had provided them that opportunity to have three-part harmony mm -hmm. so the deal the mold had already been set mm -hmm. and it was like look we love your bass playing and if you're willing to sing like it's a deal and i'd say great and i would work harder because bass playing once you know a song and especially if you're coming up with a line, it usually matches your sensibilities. So mm -hmm. unless someone's asking you to do something that feels difficult or is foreign to you, that kind of flows easily. And then you're looking at, hey, I'm going to play this song 200 times. This is going to get easy. But the thing that was more challenging was singing. And then, of course, singing and playing. Sometimes for a bass player, I don't know why, and McCartney makes it look so easy. But it can be even harder than a drummer having mm -hmm. to sing, and that you know we always come sometimes stumble into this conversation where a guy will go, "Hey, man, I think the hardest thing to do is play bass and sing mm -hmm. because of the demand of the bass notes got to land at the right place, mm -hmm. and sometimes it has nothing to do with where the vocal melody is going to flow over the top." And I used to copy some Eagle stuff in cover bands, and that's mm -hmm. when I realized I'm capable of singing a major seven. I mean, I can sing a B while my bass is hitting a C, mm -hmm. but I remember when I figured like, oh, I can do this. You know, that was kind of eye-opening. Like, it's tricky to sing a half step away, mm -hmm. but providing that note in the chord is something if you're aware of it and you strengthen it, then it it makes it happen. And and mm -hmm. that was something I worked on, especially when the album was coming out, and we had. The feeling like the label was really behind us, and they were, and we had a hit, you know, mindset from the label. VH1 was all about you guys. Back yeah. then, back yeah. then, VH1 was a real thing. Yeah, and it it could make careers, yeah. you know, especially like MTV had done it, and then they were kind of moving on to different things. And VH1 was a place where music you could still break a band, and because it was my first instance of being in a band that had a label. And they had an A&R guy, and there was a manager, and there were all this infrastructure. There's a marketing person. There are people meeting you in every city trying to, okay, you have to go to this place. you got to meet that person. There was so much more infrastructure that I felt like every gig was important. And so I would practice the vocals before every show. I'd listen to the record, and I'd sing along just so that I could. I was the third harmony guy. 
So if I wasn't singing a unison part, which sometimes would happen, I'd have to split to the third. Those are usually the notes that are furthest away from the bass. Like if I sing my part and play the bass, sometimes I'm hitting a six while the bass is hitting, you know, the note. And like singing a G sharp while I'm playing a B in a minor chord was like, that's not something I had prepped for yeah. at Berkeley or prepped for at home. And they they made me do it, and I rose to the challenge. But I, I put more time in on that on a daily basis. As a music fan, I love to go to concert and end up listening to or be impressed by a different element than I went there That's, expecting. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yep. You know? Another thing from sort of, I guess it's called the early days now, the evolution of Robin Thicke. Yeah, very early days in in hindsight, you know, at the time, I was like, oh, this is this is the future. You were involved in a much more intense level than just your bass playing on that. Right, project. and that was that was a beautiful opportunity that L.A. provided, and that's my relationship with Robin was what got me to L.A. because I was in Boston. I was raised in Massachusetts, so Boston was the closest but best city I could possibly move to, but also not cut the cord of like everything I had, all my friends and my family. When I wanted to go home at Christmas time, I could drive two hours west and be home, and then I'd be in Boston. And you know, back before the internet was like keeping everybody in touch, you would, I still had a, a paper, you know, address book and everything. There was, I moved to Boston before there were cell phones. And then during my time in LA or in Boston, I got a cell phone and you start being able to keep in touch with a broader range of people. But Boston was where I joined Vertical Horizon. And so the the main connection with the group was in New York City, but I would just drive in. The drummer and I lived in Boston and they had advertised. Was it Ed Toth at the time? Ed, yep. Yeah. And he, he now lives in, in Nashville. Nashville. So Ed and I lived in Boston. We'd drive down to New York, do it what was needed. But during that time, I was introduced to Robin by a guitar player in Boston. And the two of us, the guitar player and I, would fly out to L.A. And we would go like right down the street from where we are now. We'd drive up the hill uh, from Sunset Plaza up to Robin Thicke's house. And he was a young artist. If I'm, He's probably four years younger than me, which when I was 25... Was was, was pretty epic. He yeah. Was a kid, yeah, he was a kid, and you know he cut, he was raised in L.A. and he has a famous father, and his dad was an actor on television. So he had a beautiful house in the hills that epitomized all that L.A. has. That mm-hmm. certainly where I grew up doesn't have is you know the access to all the great musicians, access to the A and R people, all the labels. Like Robin had had a record deal with various labels since he was 17. So I met him as he was workshopping his music. And this is when the transition from, you know, it was tape, we were doing digital tape, DA88s and ADATs. Mm -hmm. He had DA88s. Then we went into Pro Tools. All in that transition, when I was talking about that transition, I started the tour with Vertical Horizon in the fall, in the summer of 99, and met Robin Thicke in September of 99. And during all my breaks from the Vertical Horizon tour, I would fly to LA and just live at Robin's house. And the guitar player did as well. And then the guys that lived in LA would drive up and we, we would actually practice before we recorded a song. Which is very different than today, what right? What a concept. Yeah. Really. It was called pre-production yeah. back in the day, which Vertical Horizon did before we recorded our album. So we did so much of that, and a lot of that was 
thrown against the wall and it didn't stick, but we spent hours and days and weeks and months and what turned out to be years playing Robin's music, co-writing, just being part of the evolution of his sound, which is why he called it the evolution of Robin Thicke. When I met him, we made one record, he had long hair, he was trying to rebel against probably who he had always been, mm -hmm. which was a clean cut, you know, extremely handsome white guy who can sing his ass off. And then he kind of got hippie-ish and we got really, you know, we tried to take it out there to experiment with different things. Then the Evolution record kind of tied it back into like the core elements of who he really is. And there was a lot of collaboration during that time. And I think those two projects we just discussed, the Vertical Horizon album, and that Robin Thicke album, to me, my personal taste in music is not always considered hip by my friends. Sure. But I consider those two records to be, put them on today, they're not dated, they're, yeah, they're, it sounds, they're great records. Right. Yeah. They're dated to me because it Production. brings me back to being yeah. a, a young, younger guy. I was, you know, in my late 20s, so I, I'm transported back. But they are, it's like, we got lucky to be trying to do some classic elements, but just, you know, four to five human beings playing music together yeah. and working with, you know, engineers that know how to record instruments. Because I, yeah. naively, I thought it was all like, show up with a bass and just start playing and it'll sound correct. Mm -hmm. And it does, sometimes it's that easy, but it often takes like, you know the the sound of the drums and all all these other elements that come into play that will affect how the bass speaks in a song mm -hmm. or will affect everything you know everybody's working together and as young people often don't get the whole picture but are just happy to be there and and you know listen more than they speak things worked out on that level and robin so i'm as i was coming with you know to LA all the time i met a girl who's now my wife I I decided early on in that relationship with Robin that I was going to make LA my home just to make this much easier to keep collaborating with Robin. Also, then I meet this girl and the engineer on Robin's record. He started introducing me, introducing me around town to different producers. And that's what was really the start of my LA music career, which I'm benefiting from to this day. Guys that I met and worked with in the studios that I've been going to ever since 2000. Mm -hmm. Out of all the projects that you've played on, is there anything that, from a pure bass standpoint, that you're like, yeah, I love what I did on this record, yeah. or I got the best tone of my life on this record? I would go kind of chronologically, like there were some moments where, you know, it's like when you're young and you, maybe you get a trophy for something or, or some sort of cheering on of like, yes, we like what you did, which enables you to have the ability to then push ahead and try to reach the next level. Mm -hmm. And for me, the first song of Vertical Horizons that I felt like I put, I brought a lot of myself to uh, in the confines of like, hey, this is what the band sounds like. There's a primary songwriter. So when you play bass supporting that, usually it's like, it's got to be that. And then other times it's it's like, oh, this is, it's so simple, I don't know where else, what will happen, and then I go, ooh, there's a chance for me to try to do something lyrical or, or McCartney-esque or something melodic, something that I feel, when it's appropriate, I love to do, and often it's not appropriate because it, it's, it's drawing the attention to the low end where you want it to be on the vocalist or mm -hmm. something else. And so best I ever had was the 
song, you know, I came up with a bass line where the pre-chorus, you know, the bass plays something melodic, which kind of steps out and really separates the verse from the chorus. Mm -hmm. And I remember because the singer, Matt Scandal, who's the songwriter, he he loved it so much. And it was yet another thing of like, okay, I'm able to follow my instincts, do something that I think is really cool, mm -hmm. and then have the artist I'm working with who I'm in a band with love it mm -hmm. and then go that yeah that's perfect I never imagined that we would do that but I love that there and then having it get on a record and hearing it on the radio like wow that to me you know I would revisit the tone perhaps but I've got no regrets in, in that regard because it just you are where you are at the time mm -hmm. you know I can hear myself in that the best I ever had was that first moment of like if you want to know one element of who I am as a player and given the opportunity play listen to that song and right around that same era Robin Thicke was getting his thing together it's not on it might be on the evolution of Robin Thicke it might be on the record previous there's a song called Oh Shooter and that was my first it's a Jack Cassidy epiphone I put flat wounds on it and I was starting to really get into what flat wound sounded like on a long scale Hollow Body, which is Jack Cassidy, was the only thing I was aware of at the time. And I did that, and there's, the song is called Oh Shooter, and then Lil Wayne took it, or Lil Wayne, mm -hmm. and he ended up rapping on it. So there's a couple different versions, but that bass playing, and again, I had to be 26 at the time. It was really like, I was so proud of that, I'm still proud of it. It's funky, it's earthy with the flat wounds, it works it was cool enough that a guy wanted to rap on it. It was cool enough as a soul tune. And it was also came out at the same time I was in a rock band playing rock shows. So I, I was really feeling like between those two songs, I was carving out a comfortable space that... You were being represented. Your playing was being represented. Yes, correctly. exactly. Where I could go, hey, let's yeah. check that out. So And then as it goes along, I mean, there's... Some things, there's some stuff on the Annie Lennox record that Glenn Ballard produced. Um, God, what it, it's... Oh, I can't remember what the name of the album is now. It's because it's been 10 years, but it's... Uh, I'll have to look it up before we go. And then cut to more present day, although it's been four or five years. That's present day. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> when I was making my first record with John Mayer that he brought me in on Born and Raised, and one of the first things we were just vibing on was a little three-chord sequence that became his song, Queen of California. Mm -hmm. And rather than follow it like blocking the chords, which I generally is usually my first thing, like... He's playing a B, I'm going to play a B. He's playing an A, I'm going to play an A. You know, he had a, it just had this nice little circular thing to it. I decided to approach it more like an Allman Brothers thing where like, well, that can be sort of a modal top and then what I do underneath or even like a so what thing. Like, hey, I'll play something that works over all those chords underneath with that heavy B thing and it's called Queen of California. We played it a couple different ways. And it, it evolved back into what's basically a blues progression, but it's mm -hmm. got, because it's John and he has a slightly different sensibility when he's a songwriter, it transcends just a blues thing and it has more of a, 
you know, singer-songwriter core to it, and then you don't even realize, like, oh, it's actually just one, fours, and fives. This is a little two minor thing, so it kind of sneaks around. It doesn't fully go blues, but I think it's, you know, it's probably a 12-bar cycle that has a just the, the chorus is built into that progression there. That's one that I had finally arrived. It were like all from the Robin Thicke Vertical Horizon days up until probably 2006 or seven. I was not sure of like if someone said, "Hey, come in, bring a bring one bass and do your thing." I still hadn't decided what my one voice was, if given the choice, because I still, you know, I'll do a five string, I'll do a flat wound thing, I'll do, I'll do myriad things on any given day, present day included, but I figured out a P bass with flat wounds, if nobody asks me to play something specific, I'm going to lead with that, which to me, you know, coming with my upbringing, it's not such a bold choice, but it was, it's a definite conscious choice to go, hey, this is the voice that I'm leading with. And then we can, you know, we can uh, shade it various ways or we can have a conversation, open up the conversation. But the bidding starts at, hey, here's a P-Bass with flat wounds, which I didn't even have one of those at one point. I played a jazz bass with round wounds for a while. I had a Lakeland five-string that was my go-to in the very beginning, late 90s, early 2000s. So, you know, being able to sort of pinpoint the moment where I got confident enough to go, that's me, and so much so that if a jazz guy asks me to play at the baked potato, I show up with a P bass with flat wounds, mm -hmm. and there's still an element of me is like they might be expecting a five string, they may be expecting a jazz bass, but I'm still like I played with Osnoy, who's one of the most gifted guitar players, and he can play anything, but he's got an instrumental jazz vocabulary. And when I pulled out my P bass with flat wounds when we were doing this gig together, he was like, man, that tone is fucking sick. And that just more confidence building. Like, you know what? When I lead with my gut and my true beliefs, it it can usually work. It's yeah. like, it doesn't feel like a, a throwback choice or an odd choice. I think a lot of people, when they think flat wounds, they instantly think hollow body. And then you have to, just because you have the flat wounds, you got to go further into... Right. Vintage slash mudland. So with That's a P bass with flats, you still have the punch, and if you play hard enough, there's still some top end. There's as much as you need usually to yeah. with a certain kind of track, and that's generally what I'm playing with. Like if there's going to be a singer there, that takes care of a lot of like, what's my role? Like, well, if someone's singing on it, I got a pretty good indication of what my role is. That's to glue the highs and the lows together, the drums, the bass, the piano, the guitar, like. I'm right in the middle there, so the flats, but I remember being a little bit surprised. You know, it's easy to look back now and go, oh, P-Bass is so cool, blah, 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 but there was a time in the early 2000s, like, nobody expected to see it mm -hmm. on a date, certainly not with flat wounds, not unless it was requested. Yeah, that's you know, really this, turned around now, especially in Nashville. Yeah, right. Yeah. Everything has changed, and, you know, I credit some of it. It's like the Pinot on the D'Angelo Voodoo, uh, Amy Winehouse, you know, as as throwback stuff has really become in vogue, and tones have kind of come back to where they once were. It it wasn't as common to like start there and to even. I remember playing P bass with flat wounds on a rock record and being surprised, like, oh, it actually it's awesome. But 
it's still because of my training as a kid it wasn't what i assumed you could get away with in in that you know yeah. because it was always like when i started recording in la sometimes i'd be playing the chorus with a pick mm-hmm. because they wanted maximum definition and stuff and that's not what you think of when you say p bass with flat wounds it's not ultimate definition mm-hmm. round wounds with a pick that's the ultimate like you want to hear that downbeat transient thing mm-hmm. but i've again you know when you it's kind of finding your place as you're kind of wobbling down the road like eventually you you get this lane where you're like hey my lane is kind of my own and i'm not second guessing my first choice yeah and that's that's the benefit of multiple exposures of like hey man the red light's on and it's interesting for a guy who were successful at playing bass at a young fairly young age you had a great array of voices that sure made sure you were in demand but you didn't have the voice that you were comfortable with till your 30s yeah i didn't even know i didn't even know that i was interested in finding it i d- delighted at a young age of like i want to do everything you know Again, I wasn't chasing fusion, you know, screaming headless torso kind of gigs. I was looking for this wide range, but I was super excited about the hip-hop side or the urban R&B side of L.A. But also, I loved, you know, I grew up loving ACDC, and I loved the fact that I was in a rock band, and we would play loud concerts and, you know, very visceral kind of thing where bass is doesn't function the same as it does in a Motown inspired thing and I I liked having that wide range and I certainly didn't think I would use the same bass for both gigs and now all these years later it's like I'm kind of doing the same bass for all those gigs or I I can I can pull it off and that's my P bass with flats which everyone sounds a little different when they pick up the same bass so I've tailored it so that you know my voice and I even Again, I I just did a tour with this woman, Adina Menzel, and that's what Oz was on. And I started the tour with a P-Bass with Round Wounds because I just had it in my head. I'd played on some of her record. I used my 66 P-Bass with Rounds. They're kind of dead, but they're still Rounds. And I thought, I'm locked in. i got to use Rounds on this. And after a couple gigs, I'm like, I would just love to play the P-Bass with Flats. And I was given a little solo moment. It's like, oh, I hate hearing myself play a bass when I'd rather be playing another bass and it could it's not always oh I gotta play the P bass with flats sometimes it's a guild with flat wounds if like oh if it if it's gonna be that I want it to be this if it's gonna be that bass I want it to be that and when I you know I'm still able to go what's what's my real truth there and I switch and that's when Oz was there like one day I was playing the rounds the next day I'm playing the flats and he's like man we all have bass in our ears, you know, everything's in ears. And he's like, I prefer the sound of the flats. Mm-hmm. I was like, great, done. That's that's all I needed to hear because that's what I wanted. I didn't get the the sound guy and the the artist. We're like, whatever you want to do. We didn't even have a discussion. You know, I'm just playing the bass I want. They They will let me be me, but it's like, I want to talk to my musicians on stage. Like, mm-hmm. I'm feeling this. Are you feeling this? And that's what I bring to a session too. Yeah. Is like, I'm feeling this. Are are you feeling this? And that's yeah. why you know some of those songs I mentioned. It's like, Queen of California, Oh Shooter, Best I Ever Had. It's got that same thing. Like I'm feeling this, and they were feeling it. And I think the song 
the songs work when everybody when everybody's in sync. Yeah. You know. Your voice is now flats. Is there a brand that you prefer? Or Absolutely. Any? Yeah, I can't. Now I can't even. It's like I've gotten so deep. I get because super the tension geeky. and the feel and the muscle memory so is in brand, different right? from flats. Yeah, yeah, like I can almost have any round wounds, forty-five to one hundred five. Mm -hmm. Love My so many too. brands. Yeah. Flat wounds. That was torture to find out because like you got to put it on the same bass or a couple different bases that are similar to figure it out. I went through all of them. I had heard about Labella, got introduced to him through a friend who knew the family, because it's still a family company. Labella, flat wounds, and they made Jamerson strings. So it's like, oh great, if I like these, this will be great. And obviously the Jamerson ones are too thick for me. He's got like 50 to 110, or the, the low E was like a 110, something ridiculous. So I tried 45 to 105, and certain brands the tension is so drastically different. Then they said, hey man, try these out. They're 43 to 104. I put those on, done. Because the tone to me sounds the same as the 45 to 105. It doesn't sound thin. It doesn't feel thin. Like, Tomastics are a little too rubber bandy for me. I know I put them on a different bass, like a, a K, hollow body, and that works. But the 43 to 104, and the first thing you have to do, the first thing I have to do is I take Vaseline, I get a cloth, rub the Vaseline, you know, just work it into the string. It takes a couple up and down the string, wipe it off. It's instantly kind of like putting a thousand gigs of sweat into the string. So it just takes off the edge. Brand new flat wounds are such a contradiction because they got a little zing and brightness and it's like, that's not why I bought you. Yeah. You're not supposed to be like that. Yeah. So I do the Labellas, 43 to 104. Hit them with Vaseline to like kill the top end. It's it's subtle, you know. It doesn't deaden them up so they're thuddy, but it just takes the edge off. It also gets any of that metal residue off because it's. I always see this little bit of, you know, of the shaved off metal or however the string is made. There's some of that that if you don't work through that you're not gonna to wanna to pick up the bass yeah. and play it. So you do that, it evens out, the strings all sound evenly broken in, and then you can get down to playing. And it's it's night and day for me. And I've had the guys at Fender check it out when they were putting my signature bass together, and I had LaBella send, or they called LaBella and had them send the strings. And I said, part of the thing is, if it's my bass, it's my strings, and that makes a big difference. Pino's bass has Tomastics on it because that's what works. That's what his bass means to him. And I put the had him put the labellas on, and they were like, "Man, it's a different bass." At, were we to put the typical ones we put on, he's like, "I don't think you would have felt at home with it because the tension's a little different." And then I told him about the Vaseline thing, and they were like, "Wow, all right, this is a whole system." Yeah. But they don't do the Vaseline. If you get my base, the, the Labellas, that 43 to 104 is just, it's heaven to me. Because it's play all night long, no fatigue. It's not like playing high tension wires. And the tone is there. 
And by when I do that Vaseline thing, it's like whether they're brand new or it's my five-year-old strings, they remain consistent. Mm-hmm. So while we're in gear talk land, which sometimes I don't do at all, but it seems like we're sitting in a studio right next to some amp pegs. Yeah. If given a chance on a project, are you always an amp guy? I enjoy it, and part of the reason to have my own studio where I can invite people to come and work is just the ease of having an amp here. Because mm-hmm. often if I'm running around town, a lot of people is like, Love the amp, but let's yeah. just go with the DI. And there's That's so many great DIs that sound good. I'm never bummed if I'm just using a DI, but there is something awesome about having the amp. I do get more and more into one signal. So if I'm recording, and I've got a, a, a box here that nobody can see, but I've got a dedicated line for the DI and a dedicated one for the amp. You can see the balances right there. The DI is basically inaudible. The, the amp provides a certain color that it's great. If I can dial that in in a certain way, it's got a three-dimensional body that it sounds great. Again, I'm not in control if the mixer's going to mix it. He may want to have the DI, and I always provide the DI. But as a player, it's enjoyable. If I can offer the amp thing, and I'm happy to throw it in my car and bring it to the session, or, you know, back in the old days there were cartage budget so someone would send an amp or I would have my amp sent and it would be set up when I walked in but I'm happy a B15 is so easy I always offer it and say hey man but it's sometimes you go to someone's place they don't have the isolation for it Mm -hmm. that said the Kemper thing is worth talking about Mm because I've played through one I've modeled my amps both my SVT and my B15 I haven't purchased a Kemper yet but I'm thinking about Getting, I know I'm going to get one, but I may start bringing that to some of the lower infrastructure sessions so that I can offer the sound of my amp. Yeah. But it's again, I got, I've got some great DIs, mm. and there's that Motown sound, like the DI in your face. Or the amp in your face. Like, I like to being able to get it singular. Yeah, right where you want it, because then there's no phasing issues, and yeah. there's no no concern with that, and there's a clarity. But, again, it's... it's. I love... I always record an amp when I, when I have the choice. But I don't know. I'd have to... Now we need to go mix with the masters and find out, like, are they using the amp? Is it making it there? Is it providing... If it is, then I'm going to really demand it. But sometimes that there's the fatness in the Noble DI or the Evil Twin. or I've even used a little Motown DI, mm-hmm. the green one. It is really... They just sound so fat. They're mm-hmm. great. So I don't, I don't miss it. Do you have a Desert Island DI? For me, it's, it's the Noble. I went years and years with the Evil Twin. And I kind of stopped looking for a DI because every couple of years someone builds a better mousetrap and you're like, you know, it doesn't change the world when you have a new DI. It's like, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Your fingers are your fingers. My fingers, my bass, blah, blah, blah. So I was so over DIs when the Noble came out and I was seeing a little bit too much hype online. It was not from the builder, Mm -hmm. but everyone was like, oh my God, the... The DIs, my life has never been so complete with this DI, and the groceries arrive. I don't pay, you know, it's like, and I'm teasing anybody that wrote those things. But now I said, all right, I have a studio. I'm going to test this sucker out. And it was all that and a bag of tricks. It was like all that and a bag of chips is what I mean to say. I do that all the time, eight days a week. So 
it for me the noble and I so much I bought two of them. I have one on a pedal board for live gigs, so I can just throw it down and go. And then I keep one in my bag that I'll bring around. I probably need a third one to leave at my studio. But one thing that I ran into trouble, some DIs, if you plug them in, if a studio is not up to snuff, it might get some noise. It might Absolutely. be buzzing. Yeah. The Noble, and this studio is one of them. If I plugged in my Evil Twin, there would be a hum, and I couldn't get rid of it. Ground lift didn't work. So I couldn't use it at my own studio. So when I got the Noble, I'm like, hey, guess what? If you're quiet at my studio, and it happened at both my studios, different locations in the city, plugged it in, it was silent, and I love the features of it. I love the pedal power that you can get from it. Mm-hmm. I was si- I was like, done. And I've been in love with it. I've probably had it now for, it's either a year or two years. I just love it. That's mm-hmm. Now I'll probably not even think about a new DI for another 10 years. And that's such a wonderful thing, because as much as we love gear, I also love not thinking about gear. I love not thinking about it, right? Speaking of, and speaking of the Kemper thing, yeah. is that a 73 SVT back there? Or that is yes. Yeah, I have the same amp. It's been uh, at my friend's house for three weeks because he wanted to model it. It's great for his Kemper. Right. We should be sharing. It, that's another great thing about. Hey, the Kemper allows you to like. You can share my. I'll trade you my amp for yeah. your amp because again, whoever plays to it is going to do something different yeah. with it. It's like sharing keyboard patches. Like yeah. great, you know, it's a preset. But I love being able to do that and I because I modeled this stuff in my own studio and I'm familiar with how things sound you know an amp sounds like an amp until you put a microphone in front of it mm-hmm. and then it sounds like an amp with a microphone in front of it yeah and you're putting it through what what's your pre what's your compression are you using any blah 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 and we to be able to do that to your liking with the Kemper is really cool I have an email into the guy he's corresponding with me I was I did a cool project with Celimony, they're going to be coming up with some cool stuff where they're going to have bass and drums and guitars, like stuff you can bring in. The, the future is just ripe with possibility of getting all these people's voices available to you, the end user. And I love that. You know, it started with Logic where they've got the drummers. And, you know, I know some of the dudes that are whoever it is, Chad or Logan or whatever these guys are in Logic where it's a it's just a silhouette of a human but these guys really played and now they're loops you can drag into logic and they're as these things happen like i've done some stuff my buddy victor and drizzo has done stuff on drums aaron sterling has a sample pack out you know it's like having all these sounds out there is awesome Mm -hmm. but it's it's all what you do with them Now that we've been in vintage land and talked about the tube DI and yeah. the 73 SVT and the B15 and the flat ones, let's go to the opposite side. You're saying the future is ripe with possibilities. And speaking right. of the future, how much synth bass do you do? I have always done it in a soft synth thing ever since I've been a songwriting guy in LA. Like, mm-hmm. I, For me, it was introduced when Timbaland came out with his first record that he had the guest singers on and he did Timberlake's record and when synths like Kelly Clarkson used to have hits where it was guitar doing stuff and Dr. Luke mm-hmm. who was playing guitar and then there was one day where I woke up it was like wait a minute 
everything that used to be played by a guitar is now done by a synth. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing it, it's like the 80s all over again. I'm oh, imagining like, oh, this is what happened. So I got, I'd always, Robin Thicke's camp was always into, like they introduced me to soft synths and everything. This is like 2000, 2001. So I'd had a MIDI controller and been in Logic or Pro Tools or Cubase when I first started out. I'd been pulling up synths and modeled synths. I only bought a Moog this a uh, year ago now and started I'm late to the game in terms of having an actual synth but I've been using models of all these things for the last 15 years so I I sort of know how they work and now I'm getting my hands on them again and this is some of that where the old is new again cuz now I talk to all my keyboard playing friends a lot of these guys had these things, maybe had it and sold it, and now Trying it's back, back in vogue. Yeah. And so I'm communicating with them, like, "Hey, teach me a little bit about my sub seventy or sub thirty seven And you know, there's, I'm doing it because it's being recorded, often not by me. And then I'm having, okay, now play this song. It's like, well, that's a synth bass, and it's awesome. And so I have a setup now where my Moog. I've got a pedal board with two DIs. One is for the the synth bass and one is for the bass because they're going to be treated. It's the same philosophy I have with an upright bass to an electric bass. Mm-hmm. I have two DIs and they both go to the front of house differently on dedicated DIs because he's got to fit them into the track or the band differently. It's not like the EQ or whatever he's doing to the electric cannot be the same as the upright. It's a, it's a different beast. So... That's I did the same exact thing with the synth bass, and I still put it through my SVT. So I'm playing up on stage, still feeling, and the band loves it. And I do. I'm just taking what I've always done in the studio because I've written pop songs and I love the synth bass and that subby world. Now I'm learning how to do it in a live setting, and I'm learning how to, you know, this 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 integration of the soft synth and the hardware now is just. It's great. Everything like I got. I want to get a Dave Smith, Prophet. I want to get more synths now because I've also I've done a lot of top end stuff with them. But I've it's like I didn't buy a Jupiter. I didn't buy any of these great vintage keyboards. I probably should have because they were a lot cheaper they back in the indeed. day. Yeah. But I've seen guys. I think with the Prophet, I could probably or the Oberheim. You know the OB one. It's the other the uh, Oberheim and Dave Smith, you know, sequential circuits team up thing. There's a couple synths that are within reach that, like, I'd love to get those. I can use them for bass stuff, but I can also actually play chords on them. Where the Moog I have is just that's a synth bass. It's like yeah. you can play maximum two notes if you split the oscillators, but it's great to have that bottom end in a modern way held down. And again, I just got it a year ago. But I've recorded that stuff on albums probably the last 10 years where I've been like, great, let's pull up a sound. I love Omnisphere. I've always used Omnisphere, and now I use Omnisphere 2. And I've gotten into contact the last couple of years. But it's just, they're there, and I love getting into them more. And now they've become exceptionally like predominant. It's like, you, you've got to have this in your arsenal. I'm late, I feel like, late to the game, but also it's it's just get there when you get there and yeah. get it 
make it part of your world if it's something you're interested in, which yeah. I'm still I'm interested in it. Personally, my light bulb moment with bass playing, I was, I was 12. It wasn't John Paul Jones or it wasn't... I was listening to British synth pop. I was listening to Depeche, some, Depeche, right. Depeche Mode and Howard Jones and the Germans, Alphaville. I was 11. So were you, 1984. Yeah. My ear... At the time, I was playing like recorder and piano in school, sure. you know. But my ear was just gravitated because I thought the main hook of the song, the part I wanted to sing along to, wow. was the synth bass. And then, because I come from a small town in Sweden, I soon got into the metal world because sure. I was known for yeah, pop. right. So I was this metalhead who really started playing bass because I liked Depeche Mode. Wow. <laughs> That's some and good, I love good beginnings, it. though. And I love how... The stuff that we now, or a lot of LA music, but that we now have to do on gigs is really close to the stuff that happened when I was a preteen, 11, yeah. 12, 84, 85, those sounds. Totally. I love I know. that. They're, and they're in vogue and they've been fortified and there's like, again, I just try to keep my eyes and ears open and I'm learning a lot from my keyboard playing session mates. Yes. And like I'm seeing the synths they're using and seeing what they're capable of and I was doing a gig and I was like, hey, I got to play these octave things. How should I do it? And I'm like, show me how you would do it because you're a proper keyboard player. And he mm -hmm. played it, you know, kind of like the typewriter thing. It was like, great, because that sounded consistent to me. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was better than doing this all over the keyboard. And like always being, it's the, I guess it's the beginner's mind or like always being a perpetual student is the best thing. And then realizing once you get once you've experienced life for these 44 years we both have it's like all right there's some repeat business going on here and my awareness of it benefits me like great you yeah. i heard like what was the cool sound from that depeche mode record now like oh great great i can get there a lot quicker than if i had never heard that and someone's playing me a song from a band of people that are in their 20s that don't have the the knowledge of like well what synth was used i've had that happen in nashville a few times where the 20 something keyboard players pull up the sound and they will check the sound out and i have to go bro i was there the first time right exactly <laughs> and it's nice to be the old guy sometimes yeah it's i feel like it's having the answers to the test i mean mm -hmm. some of this stuff i was exposed to some of the early synth based stuff via rush yeah because i'm just a you know, kid from Massachusetts, and it was always like you would learn, and whatever you liked was this, but then someone inevitably in the neighborhood was like Zeppelin, Rush, what was classic rock back then in the 80s, and that's when I got exposed to like, well, what's what's doing the bass on the Tom Sawyer song, or what's doing the bass on some of these other Rush cuts? It's like, and you watch a concert, and Geddy Lee is surrounded by Moogs and other keyboards. It's like, okay. It was always out there. I got, I, there was one time though in the 80s, probably like, or maybe 89 or 90, I, we were covering a Cars song. The, the Cars were like their synth pop at their finest in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And I, there was a little movement in my, you know, neck of the woods where like I'm playing bass with my left hand, sort of tapping it a la Stu Ham, mm -hmm. but with my right hand I was playing a synth line mm -hmm. that needed because I was in a trio and we were trying to cover a car song that had that element. And I'm like, oh, I want to do this. It was a simple bass line, pedaling eighth notes on a one, five, six, four kind of thing. But then 
there was a synth line to be played and I had I always had a keyboard in the house some sort of cheap piano sound but it always had synth sound so I could do something with it and that my experience I you know I didn't really follow it through which I've got very few regrets but if I had been a little more alert to like don't sleep on the keyboard side of the world like if there's a cool sound you like buy that keyboard because now it's too late you know yeah. I I can't be buying the synths that my friends have that are primarily synth players I would spend my base budget if I started chasing all that but I'll, I'll, I'll get a few things but that is it's it's a cool sound and it's being used you know and then you realize how oh, the Beatles kind of got into you realize like there was some synths on some of that stuff like at the very end mm -hmm. like or Paul McCartney stuff in Wings like there's synths all over the place. Mm -hmm. It was part of us growing up. You turn on the radio, you were going to hear that beautiful synth bass. It wasn't always done. You know, sometimes they're gated drums and things are bad. But the, like Eurythmics, I listen to some of those Eurythmics records now. And after having played with Annie Lennox, I, I wanted to revisit some of her records and she's just such a badass an amazing vocalist and there's all this beautiful synth pop stuff it's just i grew up on it in the 80s in mtv but it's it's amazing so many years later annie depending on what sort of spiritual beliefs you have i feel she has a soul that's more than just her in this generation and soul being a non-color but of sure. feeling you know i feel like annie lennox can school a lot of maybe young r&b singers about what it really means to be a soul singer. Yeah, she's in the true sense. It. Yeah, like it's okay. not just simply melismas and singing riffs. It's like I've seen her kick so much ass in the studio as a singer, and I suddenly it hit me. If you listen to all her, the Eurythmics all the way up to all her solo stuff. If you imagine her in a Motown girls group, the way she stacks harmonies and the way she puts all these elements together. It hit me because I saw her sort of deconstructing and then reconstructing some of her songs and the way she's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have it do this and this, and I was like, suddenly it became perfectly clear to me, she's Scottish. The Scottish people have a dark view of life, emotionally dark and this rich. It's like if you've ever been to Glasgow, you you know why. Mm -hmm. And then she grew up on '60s R&B and she's got, you know. A singer that can plumb the depths of their own emotions and their own soul. You, if you put that with the talent that she has and the ear for what she was raised on, it's like, wow, she's just a modern version of the badass Motown singers, you know, that were doing the, that came the next wave after doo wop, where like the human voice was the instrument. Yeah, they were they were layering together because that's all they had with a synth based thing you mentioned you've used it on records for 10 years I asked you your favorite stuff that you've played on somebody if they want to hear three songs that's you you mentioned three electric songs is there any right. any stuff of your synth based work that you I, I wish there, there's everything sort of been for me with synth was just providing a synth a, a, a low end thing there was n I have yet to do anything that's like more functional fun based yeah play. it's so, always yeah. really like there needs to be low end and sometimes the script is like mm -hmm. god if we put electric bass in there it's not gonna serve the songs mm -hmm. it's gonna not sound like it fits it's not necessarily just like modern versus 
old-fashioned or unhip, but it's like, yeah, the space that wants yeah. to fill that is yeah. the synth. And I've done way more, you know, hold the note, functional uh, synth bass playing. It's still out there for me to do something now that I'm getting more. It's becoming a voice, but for me, my vocabulary on it was was not at the height that it is now and I, I still haven't found my moment to shine on it yet. Where can people hear you? Live? Yeah, well, well it's it, hard to say. Yeah, I, I wish I don't do a whole lot of gigs unless it's a tour and I just ended a tour with Adina Menzel so I don't know what tour might come up next. I do play with my friends around town, but it's really hard to book a gig at a club when the session, those things tend to be booked in a, a weeks or months in advance where sessions often are like, I get a call on a Saturday for a Monday session, mm -hmm. or I get a call on Wednesday for a Friday session. Uh, there are also times where I get a session booked three months out and then I got to work around that and mm -hmm. the flexibility issue can be a challenge, but... I'm doing, we're doing Billboard Live in Japan with Paul Stanley. We're doing all these Motown songs, which puts all the weight on me. Where like, yep. if, I, if the bass is correct, everything's cool. But I, I literally memorize these songs note for note because that was what the songs, they sound correct when you play it just like the record. And then live, there's a certain energy, but I'm kind of, it's a rare thing. Where like I'm literally playing stuff note for note and it feels totally organic. And it doesn't feel like I'm holding back to play to that script. Mm -hmm. It's pretty exciting. And that's that's the the next time I know that I'm playing live. It's like mid-January mm -hmm. in Osaka. It's got to be in Osaka and Tokyo. What are you excited about? And what's next in your career? Both what's next on a kind of an ethereal standpoint? Sure. What are you dreaming about? And also what's next in your physical calendar? The There's next few a, months. I've gotten, I, I've done a couple, one in particular I did a, a, a little podcast in this very setting, in this very seat mm -hmm. two years ago and I'm, I just like sort of finished a tour and I didn't know, I was having that feeling of like, I don't know, I've been gone and the faucet doesn't just turn on, yeah, yeah. you know, so I was just feeling like, I'm always an upbeat person when it comes to music because it's like. I hear a new song and I just get excited. So, but now I'm feeling even more plugged into like, I got home off a tour that I did and I've had so much work. I'm kind of exhausted with the work I've done, which is a beautiful feeling. It's like the best feeling in the world. But I don't know. I have so much to explore with my Moog. And then of course I've just found out it's being discontinued and they're going to come out with another model. Meanwhile, it just came out two years ago. So I'm excited about getting one of the Dave Smith keyboards, uh, putting that into action, learning to become a better producer, better writer. The studio thing, I was just getting to the end of my rope where like, I, I have a house, I have a wife, I have children, I have a career, I have bases. I don't want to deal with having a studio that I yet another set of keys that I have to worry about and then new things are happening here and like some people are coming and there's you know for me the the next frontier is film music and 
television music and some of my peers that are creating that and bringing me in to work on it with them that is always inspiring because it's it feels like a very adult gig where like you have to be good you have to be really good to get those gigs and to be able to provide the composer what they need because the you know I've done some video game music where it's like the reading is is as challenging as anything I've read before and it's fast and you got to work quickly and the budgets are different and it's a whole new line of work that I didn't know existed so it's kind of like doing film stuff that excites me because I've made a, a couple new connections in the last year and they've kind of come through the studio and I didn't see them coming it's like I kind of got surprised then I've got a gig, the most exciting thing, and this will already have happened by the time people hear this, but my next gig that's like a multiple night engagement is playing for the Latin Grammy Awards Person of the Year. They're giving an award to Alejandro Sanz, and there's a house band, and so I don't know who will be playing with, how much playing we'll be doing, but Vinny Caliuta will be the drummer. I'm the bass player. Michael Thompson is on guitar. There's other great musicians. Rafa Padilla on percussion. It's to be able to get that call one day and then be doing a synth thing with a young artist on the next week. And I'm uh, going to be helping, you know, produce the Adina Menzel's live album that we recorded while we were on the road. It's Oz was playing guitar and all, you know, all these great musicians. Like, I've got all these elements that are now happening where I get to be a producer and a bass player and a co-writer all within the month of November it's pretty awesome and then knowing I'm gonna play with my friend David Ryan Harris at the Hotel Cafe on you know a Saturday and a Sunday and he just got off the road with Mayer with Steve Jordan and Pino Palladino, like mm -hmm. my world is amazingly inspiring, and I I know Theo Katzman, who's the drummer in Wolfpack, but he does solo artist stuff, and I just met Joe Dart a year ago, and like I've got these amazing musicians that if I drive up to someone's house or home studio, any of these people might be walking out. I'm uh, and that I didn't have that feeling even just two three years ago, it was just. Everything was cool, but it wasn't like now it's getting really cool. Mm -hmm. And the sky's the limit in a lot of ways in terms of what collaborations can take place. And some of these producers and the gigs that come my way, some of them, the seeds were planted 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 15 years ago. And that's when, like, I sometimes wake up tired of L.A. Like, oh, God, you know, when you have... When you log so many years, I've never stayed in one place this long, you know, and like, I know the same people, you know, because no one's leaving, everyone just stays. I think, oh God, it'd be great to leave LA and never have to drive in traffic again to get to a gig, to get to a session. And then I go to bed and wake up and I get an email like, hey, so do you want to do this Latin Grammys thing? And Vinny will be on drums. Like, what? That's what LA has, like... You go to bed and you wake up and at 3 a.m. someone emailed you the coolest gig you're going to do. And I could not live with myself if I was, you know, if I moved to Oklahoma because living was cheap and I woke up and I'd be like, but who's, what's happening in L.A.? Who like, 
the yeah. best musicians. You know, for me, it's L.A. It could be New York, could be Nashville, could be a couple other cities. It probably could only be L.A., Nashville, or New York. But when you go to bed, like you could wake up the next morning and be playing with the world's finest musicians. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an amazing feeling, and that's what keeps me inspired. Like. These guys, a lot of them are my friends, so you can easily take it for granted, but when you play with some amazing musicians, it's like, of course, it all was worth it. Like, driving in traffic, you know, making a million charts, or being prepared, doing whatever it takes to pull off the gig, whether it's, you know, hey, I had to spend money on a Moog because I didn't own one, and now I gotta go out on stage and play something, so great, I'm excited about Learning a new thing. I don't. I didn't know the interface of that stuff, so I got to learn that. Oh, like it's got a Pro Tools plugin element that I can integrate and do stuff. Like still being inspired by what's around the corner. I think is that's what's that's what's coming next in in terms of the big picture. That I don't know what's happening, and it still kind of makes me frustrated in some ways. But also, again, it's it's why I was drawn to being a musician at a young age, and sometimes I forget the initial impulse to do that. But I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to Japan with Paul Stanley to play. He's got a project where we do Motown songs and soul songs. It's called Soul, soul Station. I just had to drop off my passport today to get the visa thing going. But, like, I'm going to go and play in Japan for almost two weeks with the lead singer from Kiss like that's just only in LA does that thing happen Mm -hmm. and I met a whole new bunch of musicians from that camp and by playing with Adina Menzel I met a whole group of guys from New York that I didn't know I but I don't know what I'm doing after January you know I who knows that's what the life of the musician thank Sean Hurley again for taking the time out of a busy day to share so much of his personal journey and recording techniques with us. I hope you guys tune in for the next episode where I'll be talking to one of my heroes, Mr. Sonny Thompson from the New Power Generation, the first version of the band that made many hits with Prince and laid down some of the hardest hitting, nastiest grooves ever. As always, I gotta ask you guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please let your friends know that they have access to this level bass players through this podcast. Please go like the social media pages or give me a review on iTunes. All that stuff helps and I'm still a new podcast. I can't do it without you guys. So hopefully we'll see you right back here in about a week with Mr. Sonny Thompson from the New Power Generation. Until then, stay funky. Stay low, and I'll see you right back here at the Lowdown Society Podcast.